0: God's Word, and the reading this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2b to 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 2b to 10. Urge, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, your word that is is alive and active, that convicts us of our sins, that builds us up in Christ, that deposits gospel seed into our hearts. And so, Father, we ask that you would now bless the preaching of your word through the power of the Spirit, that we would be, uh, through it, transformed increasingly according to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's when we see it. I'm sure that we've all felt the uh, huge rise in, in the costs of living recently. I'm mean, sure we are all, if we've got a bond, we are paying significantly more in our bond repayments every month. Um, every time we go to the petrol station and, and fill up. Petrol, uh, yeah, it's more than, typically more than the, the, the previous month. And when you go to spa or wherever it is, there's what could get you two packets now only gets you one packet. It, it's, uh, it's tough. Okay, We've, there's very little, a lot of us are finding there's very little wiggle room left um, you know, after all the payments have gone off from our salaries. And so I think we it's easy for us to think, I'm sure I've thought this, I'm sure you, you have as well, that if we just have a little bit more money, you know, things will be okay. We'll be content. We'll no, have no more problems. And perhaps the, initially a little bit more cash will you know, give us some relief. But ultimately... We've been around for long enough, we know that ultimately, well, we'll never be satisfied, no matter how much we have. Because we, we never have quite the amount of money that we think we should have. There's always this desire in us for more. And so, our text this morning is dealing once again with the false teachers that we've been following in, in, in 1 Timothy um, at this, the church of Ephesus, where, where Timothy is, is, is one of the pastors. And amongst the the array of heresies, okay, we've been looking at all these heresies in the last couple of weeks. Paul zooms in on, on uh, one aspect of the heresies, and that is the existence of what we would call a, a proto prosperity gospel, alive and well in the church. And essentially, what was looks as what was looks like was being taught there was that um, Christianity is a means to get rich. It's this teaching that the gospel promises material gain. And so Paul comes in here and he corrects this false teaching and he shows that true contentment is, is not found in riches, not found in material things, but instead true contentment is found in Christ alone. So that's what we are gonna look at. So three points, firstly, the fruit of false doctrine Secondly, godliness with contentment, and lastly, the peril of, of riches. So let's dive straight into it. First point, the fruit of false doctrine. So from um, 2b to, to 3 says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the, and the teaching that accords with godliness, and pause it there, we'll carry on with that in a moment. But just to paint you some context, if you remember from last week's sermon, um, we were dealing with the practical fallout of false teaching, how that affected the church, church's relationships with, with each other. We looked at those three groups of people, the widows, um, the elders, and the slaves, and the, the impact of the false teaching caused them to start acting very selfishly And instead of serving each other selflessly as as Christ has has served the church. And what we saw there was um, an important link between bad doctrine leading to bad fruit. And conversely, good doctrine leading to to good fruit. And we'll see more of that um, here in, in this text. But first off, this begs the question, does doctrine actually matter because there are many in in the church today who who will tell us that you guys you mustn't get all hung up about the ins and outs of doctrine doctrine divides and instead we should just focus on the things that that unite us and not these doctrinal things that tend to divide us you know we should just love jesus everything will be okay Now, the thing is, what is often meant by loving Jesus is usually a code word for sentimental and and a feelings-based faith with a completely subjective understanding of, of who Jesus is. And if you start to scratch the surface a bit, the understanding of Jesus is usually the person who's staring back at you in the mirror. It's a God made in our own image. The reality is that doctrine is absolutely necessary if we want to love Jesus. Because how can we love Jesus if we don't know who he truly is? The Bible tells us who Jesus is. And all doctrine does is express the teaching of Scripture in a helpful and systematic way. So who is Jesus? Well, if you want an excellent definition, look no further than the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, which is all about Jesus. And this is the statement of doctrine. And it says, who is Jesus? Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and the judge of the world. Isn't that a wonderful crisp? magnificent all-rounding definition of Christ which points us to the truth of who he is how magnificent he is and his what he what he does in his ministry that should help us to better worship him to better know him to to better love him so good doctrine absolutely matters if we are to to love Jesus and worship him in a in, 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 in greater ways. So in verse three here, we, we see a clear distinction between sound doctrine and a different doctrine. So what is meant by sound doctrine? Well, the text explains that it is the teaching that agrees with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So does this mean that sound doctrine is is only found in the four gospels in the New Testament, which contain Jesus's words while he was on earth? Okay, there's certainly sound doctrine in Jesus's words in the gospel, but it's not, the statement is not restricting our definition of sound doctrine to just the words of Jesus in the gospel. Because the reality is that all of this, the whole Bible, is actually the word of Christ. Why? Because John 1, verse 1 tells us that Jesus is the word of God. And not only that, as Hebrews 1, to 2 tells us, he's the fulfillment of. Of God's revelation. In fact, all of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament reveals Christ and points to Christ. He's the one who's promised in the Old Testament. And those Old Testament promises are then fulfilled in the New Testament. So sound doctrine, therefore, is the faithful teaching of Scripture. The standard body of truth or what we call orthodoxy, which the the faithful church has always taught throughout history. There's a, there's a, a common body, the rule of faith, the standard orthodoxy, which has been taught since the ancient church, since the time of the apostles, through to the church fathers, through the medieval church, through the time of the reformation and continuing right up now to the present. And this rule of faith, the sound doctrine, is expressed and, and summarized in, in uh, what we have in, in terms of the historic creeds, like the, the Nicene Creed and, and, the, and the Apostles' Creed, which we, we're going to confess um, later in the service, and also the, the various confessions of faith, especially from the, the, the Protestant Reformation, whether it's the Belgic Confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the 39 Articles of the Anglican Church, Um, The Helvetic Confession, all these things are expressing ultimately the same thing. And that's sound doctrine rooted in Scripture. So in the light of this, what does the text mean by different doctrine? Well, it's anything that deviates from the standard, from, from sound doctrine, from orthodoxy. And in fact, the, the Greek word that's, that's used here for different doctrine um, is, is where we get the word heterodoxy, which means other teaching. And that is essentially teaching that then is not rooted in Scripture, or it's teaching that, that twists the Scripture, or adds new revelation to, to Scripture, or subtracts revelation from Scripture, cutting out things that, that may seem offensive to, to the ear. So the implication here is that it is not a good thing. Okay? It is not virtuous to be theologically novel, to be theologically creative, or to dream up a new teaching. As If we look back in, in, in church history, even in, in the recent past, in our own living memory, Different doctrines come and go. Hey, okay, maybe you remember, was it 10, 15 years ago, there was a book that was all the rage called The Shack. Okay, every you know, kumbuka was selling it, every church was doing Bible studies on it, they even made a movie of it, and it was oh so, so exciting. And um, essentially the shack reimagined the Trinity. Okay, it communicated a Uh, An idea of the Trinity that is not rooted in the Word of God, but is rooted in the mind of of the author, with all couched in Christian language. Here you think of another movement, Uh, the Emergent Church, probably forgotten about all this. was Maybe 20 years ago it was like the big thing, people like uh, Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, and Rob Bell in particular... Um, would, uh, he wrote books which denied the virgin birth, denied the existence of hell, and he was seen, he was held up many, by many in the Christian world as being cutting edge at the time. Anyone remember these guys? Now, these guys are in, the, in really the dustbin of history. Okay, they've forgotten. Okay, we, we, we've moved on <laughs> because ultimately. Different doctrine, it comes and goes in every generation. False teaching comes and goes, but the truth of God's word always stands. So in fact, it is sinful to go beyond what God has revealed to us in his word. And this is what Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. And to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So it's true. There are many things that the Lord has chosen not to reveal to us. They are secrets of heaven. But those things belong to the Lord and not to us. And instead, we are called to be satisfied with the many things that he has chosen to reveal to us and Where are those found? Well, they're found right here in the revelation of Scripture. And it's here where we find sound doctrine. And this belongs to us forever. There's one thing that endures forever. The Word of God endures forever. And we are given it in order that um, we may live lives in obedience to God and glorify Him. So verses 4 to 5 continue. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, okay? Dot, dot, dot. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, um, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So here we see another link between bad doctrine and bad behavior. Okay, the ethical implications to the teaching of false doctrine, and it lists them loud and clear for us. Okay, it says pretty horrific fruits that we see here. Those essentially, those who teach false doctrine are going to manifest bad fruit in their lives. They're going to tend to be arrogant. Foolish they're the types of people who always, after some controversy, um, stirring up dissension, causing division in the church, pitting people against each other. They, the text is they sick in the mind um, they're lacking truth in, in their hearts. But the bad fruit, this, the sin of the false teachers that Paul zooms in on and now shines a spotlight on, is this whole thing of financial gain, okay, that this belief that godliness is a means of gain, and the intention of gain, it's clearly financial gain. So, it's an early form of the prosperity gospel that we see manifested here in in the early church. So, here's an example of how heresies get recycled every generation, Okay, there's not, there really isn't anything new underneath the sun. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see these things come up again. But they've been around right from the beginning. And so the prosperity gospel is this teaching. Okay, it's extremely common in our context. This teaching that Christianity is, is a means to get rich. That suffering is not um, God's will for your life. And that God only desires that you enjoy health, wealth, and, 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 and happiness. Now, as we're going to see, this, is, this teaching is utterly destructive, and it's false. And why is this? Well, it takes us to our second point, godliness with contentment. So, from verse 6, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. So it's not true that godliness, and what we mean by godliness is is one's faith in Christ, um, your piety, your relationship with the Lord. Um, It's not true that your faith is a means of financial gain. Instead, the truth is that godliness with contentment is a great gain. Because the reality is that earthly riches never satisfy. No matter how much money you have, no matter uh, how many possessions you have, it'll never be enough. And if you want a vivid illustration of this, especially as South Africans, just look at our government officials. Okay? There's a idea, if I just get 100,000 rand in my account, I'll be okay. Well, that 100,000 rand turns to a million rand. If I just get the million bucks, then I'll be okay. Is a million bucks ever enough? Never enough. And that's why you can see corruption on a grand scale in our country. It's not just here in South Africa. I mean, it's the world over. Billions and billions of rands stolen because there's this insatiable desire for riches when you set your heart to them. It can never it can never be stopped. It's never enough. This thirst for riches can never be quenched if you set your heart to, to, to this. You'll, no matter how much you get, you'll, you'll never find peace and, and um, contentment. So why is it that this is the case? Well, verse 7 tells us, for we brought nothing into the world, And we cannot take anything out of the world. So the reason why we can never be satisfied by wealth and possessions is, well, these things don't last. We entered this world uh, with nothing, just with a skin on our back. And we're going to leave this world with nothing as well. We can't take anything from this side into eternity. It's impossible. So what that means then is that true contentment can only be found in things that that really will endure and really will last and have some kind of eternal significance. And what is that? Well, it's spiritual treasure in heaven, or Christ himself, as as Jesus tells us in, in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, which he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So wealth and possessions are, are fleeting. We can't pin our hopes to them. Today they are here, tomorrow the stock market crashes and they're gone. Tomorrow we are robbed and um, our money is, is gone. Whatever it is, they, they, they never truly satisfy and bring us happiness. But Christ and his benefits an eternal inheritance that we can find only in him is true treasure in which we really do find contentment to a deep level and great gain. So verse 8 carries on and says, but, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So the things of the earth are, are, are put in perspective here. Okay? It's an acknowledgement in the scriptures that we, we need the basics in life to function. Okay, We need food and clothing. Um, we're not ascetics, okay, that was the other group of the false teachers who we looked at before who deny all the good things in life, okay? We need stuff to survive, and the Bible agrees with that. But we should not see these things as ends in themselves. In other words, we should not idolize them. We, just, we need to see them in their proper place, Food and clothing, yes, they're necessary for everyday life and we trust that the Lord would provide them for us. It also says in Matthew 6, if the Lord can clothe you know, the fields and the birds, how much more will he clothe those who he loves? Okay, But we, we're not to seek our happiness in these things. These are just means in order to which we um, you know, help us to, to live. Because our contentment and our satisfaction can only be found in Christ. So let's bring us to our third point. The perils of riches. from verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Into a snare. Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So what then is the result of... Of setting your heart on, on riches. Well, as this text shows us, it's the start of a downward spiral that leads ultimately to destruction. So Paul specifically has Christians in mind. Yeah, he's not talking about the pagans out there who, who are gonna pagan. Yeah, he's talking about Christians who, who 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 have bought into some sort of prosperity teaching and who believed that they could have their cake and and eat it, that they could set their heart both on on loving wealth and, and loving God. But what we see here is that it's impossible to do both. You're deluding yourself if you think you can do both, because if you set your heart to riches, that is going to color all your decisions. It's going to become an idol for which you will sell your soul to. So let's see how the text describes this ensnarement to idolatry. Well, first, the love of wealth leads us into temptation. Okay, with wealth, the big thing about wealth is that it opens up options to you. Okay, There's increasing lure to accumulate more and, and get what you want and go places where Um, You you could never go before to fulfill your desires. And initially, perhaps these are not necessarily bad desires. But the easier it becomes to get what you want through your wealth, you soon realize, oh, I can get anything. And then there's the slide into falling into a snare, the snare of the idol, a trap, and you, you become trapped by these things that your desires have, have led you to, you realize soon that, well, I can't live without this. And in order to live with this, I, I need to spend more money on um, getting these uh, desires, fulfilling these desires that I have. And so it continues the cycle of you having to keep on chasing money to serve and worship your idol, and it becomes your obsession. Clouds all your decision making. You end up thinking having to, you, that you will do anything for money. Even lead you to foolish decisions like get into lots of unnecessary debt or steal things or, or, or even worse, sell your soul to, to, to money. And that's the end point of idols is the desire that you give your soul to them. So these things that, which you thought would grant you freedom and happiness, have now caused you misery and heartache and ruin and destruction. Verse 10 concludes, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the love of money lies at the root of all kinds of, Evils. Now, to note here, to state the obvious, money itself is not evil. That's not what the text says. Okay, it's the love of money, the devotion to it, the creating, um, uh, making money into your idol. That is a wicked thing. But what is it about the love of money that has the power to lead people away from God? That what is it about the love of money that is so destructive and that as the text tells us it causes uh, people to pierce themselves and, and the greek there is the, the word is is impale themselves and that's an awful fully graphic uh, image you know of a stake you know put through a human body that's what it's describing that that's what you do to yourself if you pursue the, the love of, of of money, so why is the love of money considered to be the root or the origin of evil? Well, what lies at the heart of the motivation for riches is this desire to be self sufficient or independence, the desire to have enough in order that you can do as as you please. And it's this exact same desire that lay at the heart of Adam's sin in the garden. Okay, he also desired for independence, for autonomy, in taking the forbidden fruit that God has specifically told him not to, what was he doing? Well he was ultimately saying that he knew better than God. He was assuming to be like God himself, determining right and, and, and wrong. And this is precisely where the love of money leads us. It leads us to a place where we think we don't need God. Instead, we're sufficient in ourselves. We, we, we're gods in ourselves. And this is exactly why Jesus said in, in Matthew, 20, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what Jesus is making abundantly clear for us here is that loving God and loving money are two things that are impossible to do at the same time. You cannot love God and love an idol at the same time. It's either the one or the other. And that truth is illustrated best in uh, Matthew 19, 16 to 30, where Jesus has that interaction with the rich young ruler, very rich guy. He, he you won know, he, well, he, the service. He wanted to follow the Lord. And um, he wanted to know, you know, what should he do? And Jesus identified the idol in his life, which was his wealth. And he says, well, you need to, you you, you, you got to stop with your idol here. Okay, you got to quit with your wealth. Okay? Well, that, that, that's, that was his love and devotion. Yeah, he couldn't do it. So the evidence that you truly love God over money Is going to be shown in how you treat money. Do you glorify God in how you steward what He has given you? Because remember, everything that we've got—our salary at the end of the month, the house, the house that we have, the food on the table—it comes from God. Okay, that's an expression of His provision, of His providence for us. How do you steward what the Lord has given you? Do you keep it all for yourself? or do you give the first fruits to him as he calls us to in scripture a generous cheerful and regular giving to the local church is a part of how the lord expects us to worship him and we don't give because we expect something in return okay that's a prosperity gospel teaching we we reject that instead we the reason why we give to God is, is purely as an overflow of what God has already done for us in Christ through the gospel. It's not that we, we need to earn God's favor by giving Him money. No, in Christ, we are already favored. Yeah, we are already counted as His beloved children and sealed for um, eternity. But giving money back to God is, is just a sign of our thankfulness. To him for his generous provision to us, for um, how he has saved us in Christ and continues to sustain us. And so generous giving to the Lord is evidence that money doesn't have a hold over you. That that it's not an idol. And it's a way to keep you reliant on the Lord, acknowledging that he alone is your provider and sustainer. So, bringing this all to to a close. So, it can be easy for us to fall into this desire for, you know, for loving money and desiring more wealth, because we're attracted by the promise that that it brings, you know, of the world, happiness and, and contentment. But we know that the reality is that it'll ultimately always disappoint. Never have enough money. We think we need feeds our sinful desires for, for autonomy from God and becoming a slave to an idol. And once we enslave to that idol, well, it only brings destruction, possibly now, but most certainly for eternity. If we, if we set our heart on that idol instead of, of God and for eternity, well, let's spell it out. Eternity separated from the face and favor of God and instead suffering in the presence of his wrath. That is a terrifying and awful thing. But thankfully, God by his grace has not abandoned us to the just punishment for our sins. Because he calls us to repent of our idolatry and trust and worship in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So the good news we, we see here is that Jesus left the riches and the glories of heaven and became poor. He took on flesh. He became man. He came to earth. He lived the life that, the, that we couldn't live to the point of going obedience, going to the cross and facing God's wrath there in our place. So that instead we might become rich. But rich, not in earthly Riches. But in riches that are infinitely more valuable than all the riches of this world could ever be. And that is through a heavenly inheritance. Christ and his benefits. Who forgives our sins. Who grants us new life in the Holy Spirit. Who truly satisfies us and gives us peace. Who promises us eternity before his his glorious presence. Enjoying Uh, His majesty, his beauty, and, and pleasures at his right hand. And these true riches, which is Isaiah 64 verse 4, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man has imagined, are ours by faith in Christ. Amen.